0: Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode three of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how black indigenous people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Besa, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Amanda zul Jamison. Amanda is an outdoor educator, advocate, writer, and through hiker In this episode, we discuss Amanda's root story, healing via through hiking contentious relationship to change, the creation of Brown Girl on the National Scenic Trail, and so much more. Enjoy! delighted to be in conversation with Amanda Zool Jamison. Amanda has walked thousands of miles since setting foot on the Colorado Trail in 2015. A year later, she became Backpacker Magazine's 2016 Pacific Crest Trail correspondent. And in 2018, Amanda went on to complete half of the Grand Enchantment Trail. The most wonderful thing through hiking has taught Amanda is that she is just one creature in love with nature, on a tiny blue dot hurtling across the universe whose expansiveness she can't even begin to imagine. To her, this means that everything is full of possibility and she's expanding her ideas about what's possible every single day. She's also a writer, educator, speaker, and justice and equity advocate centering liberation and healing through relationship with the more than human world, other humans and ourselves. Welcome, Amanda.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: As Amanda and I begin our conversation, I ask her to start with her definition of through hiking. One of the many things that I admire about Amanda is her ability to demystify concepts that may sound intimidating to most of us. As you will hear, she's all about empowering individuals to define what a through hike means to them. You will hear us reference the PCT throughout, which stands for the Pacific Crest Trail. This particular thru-hike spans from Mexico to Canada, and in 2016, Amanda landed a golden opportunity to go on this journey as Backpacker Magazine's PCT correspondent. She hiked from Mexico through California, Oregon, Washington, and on to her final destination, Canada. Over the span of five months, she hiked over 2,650 miles. With slightly under 500,000 feet in elevation gain, and so Amanda delves into the conversation by providing us with a sense for what constitutes a thru hike.
1: Yes, so essentially a thru hike is is an attempt. It is it's an attempt until it's done, essentially. But what it is is essentially you set out to walk from one end of a long distance trail to the other end of a long distance trail. What is a long distance trail? You might ask. You're gonna get. 30 different answers if you ask 30 different hikers. Um, for me, I generally think that most people are talking about more than 100 miles when they say a long distance hike. And I wanna acknowledge that like 20 miles or 10 miles or five miles is a long distance for some people. Uh, and that doesn't make that any less valid. And a lot of people like to think of through hiking or tend to think of through hiking as like, oh, I am gonna go from, for example, Mexico to Canada. Uh, but you don't get to Mexico from Mexico to Canada in a day. You take as many steps as you can take in one day and that's how many steps you can take in one day and then you wake up the next day and you take as many steps as you can take and then sometimes you need a break and so you get into a town and you rest and you take a shower and you eat lots of delicious high calorie food Uh, and then you just keep walking and... You get to decide when you stop and you get to s- decide when you go and you get to decide when you're done and when you're not done, too.
0: When I ask Amanda about her upbringing and root story, she shares that her story is very much characterized by movement and she contextualizes the story within the larger framework of the African diaspora as she acknowledges that her ancestors were displaced from the African homeland to the South. And so she begins to map this for us, this story of voluntary and involuntary movement within her family history.
1: So I was born and raised in Ohio, and I want to acknowledge that I spent the first four years of my life in Virginia. And so since most of my family was in Ohio, my family spent a lot of time going back and forth between Ohio and Virginia so it was a lot of time in a car it was a lot of movement and that was really normalized for me as a young person um, as I got older um, got a little bit more settled um, but when my parents split up uh, was constantly going sort of back and forth between houses and so again that that movement being normalized and I think that movement overall has been my root story. Um, And that's both sort of my movement as a young person. And then again, into adulthood having lived in uh, five or six different states and on three different continents in my life. And um, just also thinking about the trajectory of my ancestors um, moving uh, not entirely voluntarily all of the time. Um, uh, but being moved forcibly from the African homeland to the South. Uh, and then my family moving from the South to the North and this new sort of spread that is happening in on both sides of my family. Like a lot of folks are still centered in Ohio, but slowly people are moving in, in different directions. And it's that movement, but also that desire for rootedness, I think, that has really marked my life.
0: Amanda's story of movement led her to pursue a graduate degree in human migration with an emphasis in anthropology at Oxford University in England. Unbeknownst to her, it was in England that she began her relationship with long-distance hiking. She takes us on this journey as she shares her contentious relationship to change.
1: Yeah, so I don't, I don't know that I could technically call it a through hike because it was, it was just a section of the Thames Path. Did not go from the sea to the source or the source to the sea. Um, essentially, just started in Oxford where I was going to school at the time and made my way to the source with three other friends. Yes. Um, And on that trip, it was just a way to momentarily get away from the stress of grad school, because grad school is not particularly what I'd call a ton of fun all of the time. Uh, And It wasn't my idea. It was someone else's idea. And I was like, this is, we're going to walk 30 miles. I guess that that's a thing that I can do. I guess that sounds like more fun than staying in my flat uh, and doing homework. That sounds like a much better use of my time. (laughs) I had no idea. I had had no (laughs) idea at the time. And it, it was very different from like trekking or walking in England is very different from like what we call hiking here in the US. Essentially, it was going over and around and through uh, mostly fields. Um, so pastures where cows were or fields uh, that were being farmed and just kind of following following the river as it wound through the countryside. Uh, every night we were in a town uh, and every night, the two nights that we were out, we were in a town. Uh, we, the first night we stayed in just a little, like, bed and breakfast, and the second night we stayed in, like, a spa and got to, like, swim, uh, go into a, like, it was very fancy, um, uh, and then on the third day ended up making it, I ended up making it to the source. We, we, we had some navigational issues, and not all of us made it all the way to the source. So close, so close, uh, but I made it all the way to the source, and, what i remember most from that trip is the sense of camaraderie the sense of just like fascination with and connection to the land in a way that i'd never experienced before as well as at the end of the trip a determination that like i was going to make it like i wanted i wanted to see the, i wanted to see it i wanted to see the source and it turns out the source is just like a little stone in the ground near a very large like puddle of water essentially Like, it's just like the ground is very thoroughly soaked and like, that is the source of the Thames. Um, (laughs) And I was so proud. I was so proud that I made it there and I should have been. And I had no idea at the time that it was going to lead to all of the wonderful, shocking, wild magic that I've gotten to experience in the, oh my gosh, nine years since.
0: You know, so if your root story is so deeply entrenched in movement, how does that inform or help you reconnect to the root of what is foundational in your work now I know you're always doing the justice equity diversity inclusion work in the outdoors you're an educator you're a writer you're a through hiker and so how has that and I think it's very obvious right that that movement is always very much a part of everything that you do but are there any other insights that kind of come to you as you reflect on that?
1: I think the biggest one for me is just building and unmaking and rebuilding and constantly learning around my relationship with change. Um, we can't, as obvious as it seems to say, like we can't stop time. And every, every day that we wake up, we are new people. We have an opportunity to, do things differently. We have an opportunity to shift our mindsets, to shift our bodies, to to do all sorts of things. And for me, I have a very contentious relationship with change. I wish that I could say that, you know, I I am this wizened person who is very comfortable with change, but that's absolutely not true. I think Um, that's
0: true for most people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I... I think that with, with movement, it's simply a reminder that like nothing, even, even if we stay still, nothing will stay the same. Even if we do our best to try to freeze everything in place, whether it's, it's a good freeze or we're, you know, trying to pause in a moment of peace when there's so much turbulence all around us. I I really think that movement is a reminder that like we can be present in the moments that are good and beautiful and we owe it to ourselves to try to show up for ourselves and for others in moments when it's not as easy. And there's not a word for this in English, but I'm pretty sure there's a word for this in Portuguese. But it's essentially just the the knowing that the the sweet sadness that comes from knowing that a moment will never come again and I am not gonna to try to pronounce this word, but I'm happy to send it to you to put it in the show notes or something. Uh, and I, I really, it's, it's those moments and finding as many of those moments as possible that I think makes my relationship with change just a little more
0: tolerable. Mm, it's almost like there's a sense of grief that you're constantly, I guess, with change processing, right?
1: Yeah. Grief and immense joy, right? Because it also means that like in moments of pain and anguish, as wrapped up as I am in that pain and anguish, I know that it's not going to last forever. I know that even, even if I am still in pain and if I am still in anguish, my relationship with that will change over time. And I will learn ways to befriend is maybe a strong word, but to, to be in relationship with that pain in different ways.
0: To coexist
1: alongside yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Maybe we can skip around because one of the questions that I did have for you as I read your PCT um, articles in Backpacker Magazine is the sense once you returned from the Pacific Crest Trail... Um, And I read all of your articles chronologically, because I wanted to really feel like I was on the journey with you. (laughs) Yeah. And at the end, it was just so profound when I read that the PCT, I thought I was done with the PCT, but the PCT wasn't done with me. And I felt such a tremendous sense of like, oh, it was just, it, it broke my heart to some extent, because... I remember you also describing just this sense of being in your apartment and kind of feeling like the walls were caving in. And I can only imagine after being on the PCT for what, like five months, right? Yeah, just about. Five months, 2,650 miles. When we're talking about, you know, this idea of like coexisting with the beauty and the grief that is attached to change, what... About that moment in time still sits with you to this day?
1: I think a lot of it is is deeply embedded in change and knowing, like, knowing very physically the difference between movement and it's not stasis, but less movement. And I think that there's a huge sense of accomplishment when you are on a through hike because you can literally turn around at any point and see where you often see where you've come from. And so there's a simple, sense of accomplishment that's just embedded in everyday life when all you're doing is walking. You can turn around and see a mountain that's way behind you. Um, looking at you Shasta, cause you could just see that mountain for forever uh, on the trail and be like, I was there. I was right near that mountain just a few days ago and now that mountain is very much in the distance and and my feet brought me here whereas in friend country life where a lot of the time especially in the last year we're behind a computer uh we're inside or we're outside and very disconnected from other people or we're we're staying a lot more local more often just to satisfy the the restrictions or or the requirements of everyday life i think it's very easy to feel like you're not quite spinning your wheels but whatever the foot equivalent of spinning your wheels is <laughs> like you're not you're not really making miles you feel like you're moving a lot slower you feel like you're not making progress it's it's easier to end a day in those circumstances and not really know what you've accomplished. And it's so wild, even five years later, if you give me a big landmark on the trail, I can probably tell you all about the day that I had. Like granted, I have like a record of it on my blog, but like just out of my memory, like I can tell you that at the highest point in Oregon and Washington, I stopped and I took silly pictures with my then partner and he told me a story that day about a campsite that he had stayed at um, with somebody in the community. And he knew from his hike three years earlier than that, all of these things about the trail. And he was able to tell me those, like those stories, like it was yesterday. And I think that there's a lot of what we tend to be focused on, at least in this culture, is just sort of like what, what, our, what our accomplishments are and and what what we're doing on the day to day. And I think that it's really heartbreaking in a lot of ways when we don't feel like we have much to show for that, especially in comparison, right? Like I can say that on XYZ day, I made 30 miles in a day. And in the last few weeks, I've been lucky if I could make one in a week. And, and there's, a, there's a grief to that that I think is only, I think you can only overcome it and like, this is not true, but I think that there are generally two ways that we think about overcoming that. And so the first way is to just get back out on trail again, which is what a lot of people choose to do. Absolutely. Uh, A thing that I would love to do in the near future. And I think that the other way is to understand that even when we are still, we are still walking a path. And finding purpose in that, finding peace with that is the journey. Capital T, capital J. And I mean, in a way, I don't think that I'm ever gonna stop grieving that I am not on trail when I am not on trail. And that is a part of life and a part of change and a part of who I am now. And I don't think that I would change that for anything.
0: As I listen to Amanda, I am reminded that feelings of grief are very much part of the healing process for most of us. So I ask her if she approached any of her through hikes with the intention of healing and or processing a certain situation. As Amanda continues, she shares how healing presented itself via the Colorado Trail, the Grand Enchantment Trail, and the PCT.
1: So it's super interesting. I I feel like I only got on one trail with the intent to heal so when i was looking at getting on the pacific crest trail and ended up getting on the colorado trail first it was very much to see if this was a thing that i could do and just like wondering like what what type of relationship would with my body would i need to have what type of relationship with the lamb would i need to have like what type of relationship like with my with myself would i need to have in order to walk about 500 miles. And then on the PCT, I was given the opportunity to do it again. And I was like, yes, do it again, do the thing. Uh, And I don't think that it was until I got on the Grand Enchantment Trail that I knew that I specifically went out because I knew how much of a balm for my soul that it would be. And, And because I needed a reset, like I needed to figure out who I was again after a beautiful, wonderful relationship with another person just like didn't work out. And so I don't, I don't even know that it was explicit for me at the time. I just knew that I had some things to process and that one of the ways that worked for me to process things was to walk uh because i have definitely said this before but the only thing that you can't outwalk when you're on the trail is yourself you are stuck with you 24 hours a day with very little distraction it's just you and you uh so you start to develop a sense for the way that you react to things through your idiosyncrasies uh sometimes you just need a break from yourself <laughs> and sometimes you can you can hold yourself in really tender ways that i think are really beautiful um and so while i didn't start the colorado trail or the pacific crest trail with like healing in mind i think that there absolutely was a lot of healing going on a lot of reorienting my self worth happened on those trails and not to say that it's like perfect now because spoiler alert it's not Uh, but just being given the opportunity to be a person in ways that we're not often allowed to do in the front country and and which we are very very privileged to be able to do for days months weeks at a time I definitely don't want to you know, pull a blanket over that part of it and having access to a space in which my only responsibilities were feed myself, water myself, occasionally move my legs. And I mean, there's more to it, of course, like there's navigation and like, how far do you have to go to water and where can you camp and how far is the next town and do you have enough food and all of that kind of stuff, but all like very survival oriented stuff. It really simplifies your understanding of what life is and shows you just like how much extra that we like put on life. Trying to think of a good example. Like we don't, we don't have to like put these extra expectations of like, essentially like investigating how hard each person works in order to be able to like give them shelter, in order to be able to give them food, in order to be able to give them water and the basic things that we all need for survival. Like we don't, we don't have to take a look at that on such a micro level in the ways that we do. We could just say, oh, hey, you're breathing. Like that means that you are deserving of housing. That means that you are deserving of food. That means that you are deserving of care in ways that, that we don't often do, at least here in the United States.
0: As we continue on the topic of healing, I am reminded of an interview where Amanda shared a specific moment on the Colorado trail that made her feel powerful. Amanda described this moment as an unveiling of sorts. So I asked her if this unveiling allowed her to reclaim parts of herself that were lost and or hidden from her awareness.
1: I think that it's, and this is gonna sound whatever way it sounds, but like being able to discover the land 2.8 miles an hour at a time, because that is generally how fast I walk. I can't really get much faster than that. Lots of hikers can go three or four miles an hour. I'm just like 2.8. That's me. And it's definitely something that I worked for. So it was not, it was not immediate by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and being able to see the land in that way, I think really didn't necessarily like show me different parts of myself that were hidden, but allowed me to see that I had hidden depths. Like it wasn't, it wasn't until okay. that point on the Colorado Trail that I really felt like I could do this through hiking thing. It, it wasn't until I stood on the top of Forester Pass that I thought maybe this is, you know, one of the coolest things that I will ever do. And I have, to, I have to live with the fact that like, and I hate this like approach to life, but I'm gonna say it anyway, that like I may have peaked Like totally useless, right? Like I don't I don't think that it's like useful because I'm gonna like I I am I'm going to and I have gone on to do other like wonderful amazing things and I'm totally glad that I've had those experiences, right? Like and like I might never again stand on top of Forester Pass on a beautifully sunny day with like perfect conditions, like looking down into King's Canyon, like with people who i miss and still think fondly of like that that experience will never come to me again not exactly the way that it was and it's it's those types of revelatory moments that that do feel like peeling back of the veil and not necessarily looking at myself in in ways that are more revelatory but looking at the land and the human condition and just like all the stuff that I said in my bio, like I that it wasn't too long after that that I was walking down, was descending Mirror Pass on the north side and was just like, oh, like I am just a speck here because there's lands all around you that are towering and incredible and so far away and they feel so close and it's all just so beautiful that you're just like oh like i am nothing in the scheme of all of this and not in a bad way right like just like i don't matter in the grand scheme of things and what that means is i can do literally anything with my life and i get to within within the confines of you know like the privileges that i have and the privileges that i don't have Because again, I want to acknowledge that systemic oppression is absolutely a thing and we're all subject to it and it affects all of us in different ways. Like, and I can carve out, like, depending on what I am willing to, what power that I'm willing to step into, what I'm willing to give up, like, I can carve a life for myself that maybe looks nothing like the life I expected that I would live as a tiny human going back and forth between Virginia and Ohio and one that is going to feed me that is going to nourish me and that is going to ultimately mean that I do matter at least to some people in this little bit of space time that I am occupying and to me that makes all of it worth it.
0: As Amanda and I continue to discuss the ebb and flow of the healing process, I then ask her to share how she experiences the sacred and ancestral guidance in her day-to-day life.
1: And I think that it's important to point out that, like, none of this is linear, on on one day you're just like oh my goodness I have had this amazing revelation and I totally have it figured out and then two days later you're in the middle of like a rainstorm that has chased you under a pine tree and you're huddled over one of the hand warmers and you're just like I don't got this I don't got it figured out what is happening I don't know what's going on and I think that's the beauty of it right the beauty of it is that it is never done I, I think that one of the big things about nature for me is that like it and just like humanity more generally, is that like it was here before I was even a thought and it will be here, hopefully it will be here long after I'm gone. And that especially with, with when talking about the land and especially as I'm doing more work and understanding like the history of the land that I'm on, the history of the lands that I've walked, the, the history of, of my people across the land. I think that that's that's just really important to me.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect segue into one of the other questions I wanted to ask you, which is how do you experience the sacred and find ancestral guidance in your day-to-day life?
1: I feel like most of the things that I'm learning are, are ancestral wisdom. If couched in somewhat more modern terminology couched in in different people, that kind of a thing. I am really only developing a relationship with my biological ancestors really recently. Uh, family has always been a really touchy topic uh, in my immediate family and it's like we don't we don't talk about history in my immediate family and often when that happens is because that history is really painful. And the, the glimpses that I have, have gotten have been full of a lot of pain and, and sorrow and trauma and disconnection and connection and reconnection and just holding all of that while making and remaking connections with family members as an adult has been a really beautiful process and a really hard process. And while I love where I am, the and maybe this is just a thing that people experience as they get older, like I, I really am sad that I'm not also able to make those connections with family in the ways that I would like to because there's there's so much rich history there and even the snippets are part of me and they're a part of me that i don't know and would like to explore a little more and i feel like i have a really rich hmm, how to say this set of intellectual ancestors i guess And so I'm thinking of folks like James Baldwin, like Octavia Butler, just people who really have informed the way that I see the world and the the ways in which I can bring more community, more relationship into my life. And we're getting we're getting a little taste of real life at the moment.
0: Uh, (laughs) Is your cat right
1: there? Yeah, I believe he just woke up from a bad dream. So, um,
0: no, but I think that so many of us, I think can relate to that because I know that even it resonates with me, like with my own family, this idea that we don't really talk about our histories because of the fact that there is so much trauma in them. And it's easier to sweep them under the rug than to actually discuss them. And, and that's been something, you know, like yesterday, my grandmother, I saw on Facebook that she turned 95, but there's all of these family dynamics that just never made it so that I had a relationship with her. Mm. Um, Yeah. And she's my, yeah, my only grandmother who's still alive and I'm like, oh man, like I've been on, you know, teetering on the fence of like, should I reach out? Because, you know, every single family member will have their own truth about yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is that is part of this, right? Mm-hmm. That you have to and once they're gone, they're gone and you you can't then excavate those those stories and those memories and and so I I totally am with you on that. I also am at that point in my life where really like wanting to write family chronology but then knowing that there are going to be certain gaps and holes because of these really weird family dynamics that it's my decision now but I also feel like wow she's now 95 and what is that conversation going to be like and not me coming in being insensitive and trying to launch into a relationship that really should have been nurtured yeah
1: and I I feel feel like like there's I don't know. I feel like in my family, there's definitely a difference between like sharing story that like tends to come up a little bit more naturally versus being like, what was your experience of X? Because that way usually doesn't work. Like that's, that's not, that's not what or how people want to want to talk about themselves or want to talk about their lives. Like I've learned so much about my family, just by sharing hard things that I'm going through. Um, very much like contextualizing that, like I'm not, I'm not looking for assistance and I'm not looking for whatever. But they asked what was going on, and so this is what's going on, um, and and just the the reciprocity that exists. Like when you are vulnerable with somebody else, it tends to, in my experience, make them feel safer, especially if you have a pre-existing relationship to to be willing to share some of their experiences with you. And there, there doesn't have to be a solving in that, there doesn't have to be a fixing in that, there doesn't have to be like an object in that. It's just like being being a person with another person in a way that like you you haven't had the opportunity to. Um and just like that that in my opinion really holds the the key to our collective healing. And I don't know that we're gonna like get there in my lifetime, certainly. Oh yeah. Um and like even even just like letting other people know that they're not alone i think has so much so much weight to it that that we don't necessarily
0: think about on a day to day i think that you're right that in sharing stories right like stories within themselves i think are very sacred yeah and i think that it's the intimacy of of sharing that story and being vulnerable with someone that is something that we don't do on a daily basis when I think about my friendships, I think sometimes, you know, wow, I haven't had a conversation about spirituality or religion with, you know, one of my very close friends. And I think, wow, but we've been friends for 16 years. So why don't I know this aspect of her? And then there's certain aspects of me that they don't know of. Right. So yeah. I think really it has to happen, but we have to facilitate that process. But then we also have to be, I think in that kind of frame of mind. And a uh...
1: I don't know. I feel like and a place of safety even for the first
0: person who's doing the sharing
1: because I don't think that without without that you don't get the initial share that then like safety begets safety. I feel like in that way. And yeah, just how do we how do we do that more with the people that we feel are closest to us? Like how do we stop feeling like we're too much and start figuring out the ways that like we can we can feel held by each other and to like circle back I guess to the initial question that you asked that sparked all of this conversation like that is storytelling and vulnerability and sharing like that that is the sacred to me like being able to share space with another human being or human beings or even you know just the more than human world in in a way that is reciprocal in a way that is communal in a way that is like supportive and with, with the understanding that like no one is disposable.
0: As we transition the conversation to Amanda's outdoor advocacy work, I ask her to share the most rewarding and challenging aspects of centering justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the outdoors.
1: So I'm going to preface this by saying that I think that all work that we do, particularly around social justice needs to have like a selfish interest to it. Uh, because if we don't have a selfish interest to it, then it's just saviorism. Uh, and that comes, that my, my understanding of that comes immediately from Charlene Carruthers. Uh, and so for me, like what, what I get out of it is is very selfish. Like I A, get the the feeling of relief that comes, of just like speaking truth to whoever is listening, whether power is listening or not, like I, I find a lot of relief and groundedness in speaking truth, and I also understand that like there every especially in the outdoors and especially writing about the outdoors like I do and working with getting people outside in the way that I do is that most of the work that I do is an invitational. Um, and what I mean by that, that's from Bonnie and Moore. And what I mean by that is that like people will be following in my footsteps if I'm doing it right. And I think that there's a lot of value in showing people that they're not alone in the way that they feel. And there's a lot of value in like seeing that you're not alone in the way that you feel. And I think that that what the the rewarding part of the work for me is seeing that I'm not alone, seeing that there is a huge community out here doing this type of work, particularly outdoors, that people have been doing this work for many, many years before me. Like I'm a I'm a part of an intergenerational group now, the the Beckworth alums who have been who are black and have been recreating the outdoors in Colorado since the 80s, since before I was born. (laughs) And, and just knowing that like, I am one piece of a like, circle, essentially, is kind of the way that I like to think of it. Um, and it's just my job to, to connect connect what I can where I can. And so that's like the, the rewarding part of it for me, is just knowing that I'm not alone, that I'm not doing this work alone, that, that I, I, am, I am simply a stand-in to hand it off to the people that are coming next. And I am going to do my work and I can't do any more than my work. Uh, And then I'm going to hand it off to the people who are going to continue to do the work. The challenging portion of it is I think just the, the fact knowing that the work again has been here for longer than I've been around and will be here for longer than I will be around and choosing every single day to do the work anyway, even when I'm exhausted, Although I do think that it's very, very important to rest and to take breaks and to, to breathe and to be because no one can do this work 24 uh, seven. And no one should do this work 24 seven. That's why we do this work in community. <laughs> but knowing that even when you feel like you've made some progress, you're going to have days that feel like you slid all the way back to square one. And those, those are the days that make it really challenging. And knowing that this is work that is done in community and knowing that you're not alone, like that is, that is what helps me to pick it back up once I am rested. This should absolutely not be read as a, like any kind of shade on anybody who has stepped back from this work because of their health. Like you, you have to prioritize your wholeness because that is ultimately what the system is trying to undermine. And if we're doing this work in community the way that we should be doing, there's plenty of room for people to step back for weeks, months, years, lifetimes, because we're, we're always swapping in and out. We're always ebbing and flowing. We're always supporting each other in community in that way, even if it looks like a stepping back.
0: A couple months ago, Modern Hiker, the most widely read hiking website in the West Coast, featured Amanda as a trailblazer. In the article, she clearly states that when we, as Black, Indigenous people of color, step outside, we carry not only our own history, but also the assumptions that others have of us. Therefore, Amanda understood that preparing for the PCT, especially under the umbrella of an appalling 2016 election campaign season, also meant knowing how to navigate the social, political, and personal implications of moving on the trail as a Black femme. In Modern Hiker, she states, quote, when I was looking to hike the PCT, there are things that you want to know. I heard that you might have incidents where you're dealing with microaggressions, where you're dealing with racism. I wanted to know about those things beforehand so I could emotionally prepare myself. Because it's one thing to be hiking and on top of the world, and quite another to be jarred back into your body by observations about race that you weren't ready for, end quote. As Amanda attempted to gather intel on other Black long-distance hikers, she ran into multiple dead ends, and like many outdoor advocates that you'll hear on this podcast, she decided to create the resource herself. This is how her blog, Brown Girl on the PCT, which is now named Brown Girl on the NST, came into existence.
1: Yeah, so back in, I was actually looking to PCT in 2015. That was the initial idea. And just turned out, it turned out funding wise that couldn't, couldn't hike the whole way of the PCT, but I lived in Colorado at the time, so I could do the Colorado Trail. That was a little bit logistically easier for me. Um, And while I was, you know, I had attended the ads as they called it back in the day, the annual Day Zero Pacific Crest Trail kickoff. Uh, which happened uh, every year the last weekend in April uh, in Lake Marina for many years uh, before it became defunct. And I had gone and I ex- had experienced the community and felt really comfortable and safe around the, the people that I was meeting, especially sort of like the, the people who had already hiked the trail and just felt like both this was going to be a good thing for me to do. This was going to be a safe thing for me to do. And it wasn't going to be good and safe all the time. And so I essentially went looking for another black hiker um, who I could talk to ideally a black woman hiker um, so that I could talk talk to someone and see sort of like if there were towns that I needed to avoid or if there were places where microaggressions had happened and just to, just to sort of emotionally prepare myself for that. And I was only able to like through trail angels and through just sort of like talking to people in the community, I was only able to find essentially one other, one other person, uh, who had hiked, uh, and who, uh, I reached out to and gotten, got in touch with. And I, Essentially, was just like, hey, so this is who I am. Uh, These are the questions that I have. Is this is this something that you're willing to talk to me about? Um, And for whatever reason, it could have been, you know, life got busy, and like this random person messaging on Facebook was not the top priority in life. But like for whatever reason, I didn't get an answer back. And I really wanted there to be a, a record and a resource for people to look at and reach out to 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 feel more safe because I have discovered that I am a person with a relatively high risk tolerance and that's not the case for everybody. Uh, And that has a lot to do with the fact that like, I mean, it's called Brown Girl in the NST because I uh, am a light-skinned black woman. And especially back when I was perming my hair, perming in this uh, particular instance does not mean curling the hair, but it means straightening the hair. Back when I was priming my hair, I always, always, always got questions, usually from white people about what are you never like, you know, what ethnicity are you or well, sometimes that but mostly just like what are you. Uh, So uh, before I had an afro and then shaved my head I was a little bit more ambiguously brown Uh, and the the blog title is definitely a nod to that. Um, And I really just wanted it to be a resource for other black people and other black women and other black femme people to be like, this was my experience. Here it is. It's all laid out. You're more than welcome to, you know, page through it. You're more than welcome to reach out and ask me questions. Um, This is This is a record that is, for me, yes, because it's been amazing and wonderful to be able to go back and to read my blog entries, and it's also just so folks can have another data point. Like, clearly, my experience is not going to be the experience of other people, but it is a data point to show folks that this is is what I experienced, and were there a lot of microaggressions? Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. But was it also amazing and wonderful and totally worth it? I think so. Um, but it's a, it was a way to me to have a record of it for myself and to help people in the community make their own decision about whether or not this is something that they wanted to undertake. So that's why the blog. <laughs>
0: Whether Amanda likes to admit it or not, there's quite a bit of intention behind her design of Brown Girl on the NST. So I take this one step further and ask her, what role has intention played in coming into your purpose? She begins by sharing with us how much of her life has been about going with the flow and simply allowing herself to fall into things.
1: This is going to be a wild answer. I'm just going to preface it with that because I really feel like I... have f- in a lot of ways, in a lot of my life, I have fallen into the things that I have done. And things have just sort of come up organically and or accidentally. And I've been like, I'm going to try this. And then that doesn't work. And I'm like, cool, 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 cool. I'm going to try this. And then sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't.
0: Uh, that definitely happened. Well, I mean, that uh, happened with you becoming the correspondent for Backpacker, yes, right? Yes,
1: it did. Yeah, so I essentially... I wrote my blog for the Colorado Trail um, because I, you know, had set it all up and then decided I wasn't going to hike the PCT and then decided to hike the CT and was like, well, I'm still going to blog because I like writing and that's a thing that I do okay. Uh, and so I wrote for the Colorado Trail and then a uh, someone read my Colorado Trail blog and made some introductions and then suddenly I am the PCT correspondent for Backpacker uh, and I am... On like, essentially it was two weeks between sort of finalizing things with them and uh, actually setting foot on the trail for the first time. So it was, it was all very, very sudden um, and sudden and, and good and fortuitous, right? Like I, and maybe this is hindsight and maybe this is uh, a little too woo-woo for some people and that's totally fine, but like it felt, it felt not necessary. Like it felt fortuitous, I guess. Like not not coincidental, but not not coincidental either. Um, but I mean, that's been a lot of my life. That's how I ended up in Colorado. That's how I ended up going to grad school. That's how I ended up, uh, like, just being interested in through hiking as a thing in the first place. It was entirely accidental, and and I think that there that a lot of both a lot of my life has been wonderfully, fortuitously accidental, and I think that a lot of my life could have been way more intentional than it has been. I think that I, I have been the type of person in my life to very much just sort of like go with the flow rather than to set intentions and try to get to a thing, because the, the times that I've done that, I've very much been stymied. So right after college, right after undergrad, I was like, I really wanna be a teacher. And uh, no one is hiring for teachers right now because I graduated into the height of the 2008 or like the 2009 was the height of the recession at that point of that particular recession. Uh, And so I was like, well, I guess I can't be a teacher. So I'll go back to grad school to like try to be a teacher and I'll, you know, go get my master's degree. And then I came back from that and they were like, yeah, no, you need a PhD to teach a community college now. And I was like, okay, cool, 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 cool. I don't want to do that. So now what? Uh, I guess that I will go to try to teach English as a foreign language. Uh, And then that did not work out in the ways that I had hoped that it would, Uh, or I'll just like use my graduate degree to help, uh, to help like resettle refugee populations. And then that did not work out because it turns out that that is very competitive and, Again, recession. So did not quite work out the way that I wanted it to. And so like, it's, it's been a lot of attempting to set intentions and then getting stymied, but life continues to happen. And being curious about those things and being willing to go with the flow when necessary. But I think particularly as I get older, like intention is playing more of a role. And so I am starting to become way more discerning about like, what feeds me, what works for me and what doesn't. And in my communities, what I've seen work in my communities and what doesn't. And just trying to orient my life in that direction. And so it's not necessarily about like having an intention like, hey, I am going to be I'm going to be a college professor. And that's what I'm going to I'm going to teach undergraduates. And that's what I'm that specifically that specific thing is what I'm going to do with my life. Like that, Historically for me has not worked out, but I am still doing education work like I am still essentially doing doing justice and equity work that's like part of part of it most of it is education and just being like what I always wanted to do as an undergraduate professor was to sit with people and let them come to their own conclusions and to, to hold space for them to do that. And I really think that that's what I like, that is the essence of what I do now in my justice and equity work. And it looks way different than what I thought it was gonna look like. And so I do think that intention plays a role and it's it's hard to particularly in this day and age to be that focused on like this one particular outcome. Like it has to look this way. Like, I don't I don't know that that is as effective these days as it used to be. And you can still fill those roles and fill those needs, but it might look a lot different than what you expect it to look like.
0: A few months ago, Erica Nelson, host of the Awkward Angler podcast, published two great interviews with Amanda on accountability and hiring for diversity in the outdoors. After listening to Amanda speak her truth, it was clear to me how intentional and fearless she is in advancing this work. So as we wrap up our time together, I express my admiration of her fearlessness. Amanda's values are her compass, and she is always discerning whether any particular person, place, or thing is worth the time and energy. Because if there's anything I know about Amanda in the short time that I've known her, it is that she lives from her heart space.
1: There's definitely like always an element of fear to it. And I, and I definitely want to acknowledge that. And there's that famous quote that I am blanking on the attribution to uh, that basically just says, stay afraid, but do it anyway. I mean, even, even with leaving those jobs, like, and yes, absolutely, totally want to acknowledge the privilege that I had to be able to do that. And like, I, I knew that that was the best decision for me in the moment based on where I was, based on my, where I was financially, where I was like with a support community, where I was like in my life, like that was, that was the best decision to make for me at the time. And super privileged and a thing that I, you know, have in a lot of ways like paid for. Like there, there are positions that I have uh, interviewed for that I have not gotten specifically because I was honest about why I left a position. And so there, there are very much consequences to, to those actions. And I'm not trying to undermine those. Like, and for me, it's better to be scared and do it anyway than wonder what my life would have been like had I been brave enough to do the thing. And like if you're if you're not there yet, uh, humans who are listening to this, like it's it's okay to not be there yet. They're like so so many things to think about when you are just thinking about like there's just so many so many different aspects of life to think about before you do things that are scary and for me it has definitely been a net positive in my life just continuing to do
0: the things that scare me that I know that are right for me. Thank you so much Amanda like always I love talking to you and I'm so happy that you know really truly grateful that we were introduced I know we've talked about a lot of heavy stuff today but we're gonna end it on a light note so are you ready yes all right what are your favorite three things in nature and what does it tell us about you
1: I my favorite three things in nature are the sun the air and the desert i just am basically a like two-legged cat in a sunbeam so that's why the sun uh i just love lounging in this it just makes me feel really happy and sunscreen is so important but nevertheless sun is great um air has always played like a really just fun playful role in my life like just being, being in wind particularly, and just like feeling, like the, the tactile sensation of wind has just always been a favorite part of nature for me. Uh, and then the desert, I feel like the desert has just so much to teach all of us. Like we feel like it's this barren place and it's really hot and it's really awful. And it is those things in many ways, yes. Um, and to me, the desert teaches me that there are so many different ways to do the same thing. And there are just so many, so many different ways to survive. And none, none of them are like better than others. They're just different. That's just why I love the desert. That and I've always wanted to hug a barrel cactus. I'm not gonna do it, but there's just something in me that just really wants to just <laughs> hug a barrel
0: cactus. All right, number two. What uh, which of your ancestors would you most like to meet? So
1: I don't it's interesting. On one side of my family, like I know, I know who my ancestors were, sort of back to the last enslaved person in our family, and then on the other side of my family, I know three generations back, and that's it. Um, and so, I would love to meet someone, a femme person in my family, who did the best that she could with what she had and still managed to find joy occasionally like i would just really like to hear whatever she would want to tell me
0: how would you like to spend your elder
1: years surrounded by community and and that doesn't have to necessarily look like a biological family i don't i don't know that it will and just communities of care um Just like having really deep conversations, taking care of one another when we're feeling good and when we're feeling bad and playing lots of Dungeons and Dragons.
0: All right. If you could give all human beings one virtue, which would you choose? How is this not heavy? How is this not heavy? (laughs) But it's fun for you. (laughs) Is it?
1: No, it's great. It's great. Um, I don't know if it's like compassion or empathy, but like we... I think experience is experience a virtue. I feel like experience is maybe like yeah. a loaded virtue, but like we tend to get things. Just like think thinking about my tra- trajectory as a person who like very much was raised in respectability politics, and then like, uh, you know, have has slowly learned over the course of my adult life like more about more about justice and equity and history and all of those fun things. I really think that experience is the best teacher and while that's certainly not me like wishing trauma on anyone like if if there was a way to to give people some lived context of what others go through i think certainly the the current state of affairs on turtle island would be very different
0: and the last one is what space and place most dramatically influenced your life
1: Is it a cop-out to say like just being a human who is breathing
0: on the planet? No, I don't think it's a cop-out. I just, it's... I think if that's how you feel genuinely right now, then that is your answer. Yeah. Just like I, as much nonsense
1: as I have gone through and heartbreak and heartache and grief, like I don't think that for me, I don't think that I would trade any of that for the, the beauty that I have been able to see and just the, the small intimate moments that I have been really honored to be a part of. And I'm just really, really grateful that the conditions for sentient life on this planet really worked out the way that they did. Um, and that was billions of years in the making and I'm really just stoked to be here even though it's not always easy by any stretch.
0: To close out the space, Amanda leaves us with some final words as I ask her, how can we be of service to you in advancing your outdoor advocacy work?
1: Um, so I so you can find me. It's easiest to find me on Instagram. Uh I'm just at Brown Girl on the NST, NST like National Scenic Trails. Um that is also my website, brown girl on the nst.com. There's not a lot of new material. I think the last time I updated like was in 2018. So it's been quite a minute and uh there are lots of different reasons for that, and ones that I will probably explore in writing here in the next couple of months. Um, ways that ways that people can be of service to me. Hmm. What I really want is in this moment is to acknowledge that, like doing doing self work, doing a, particularly a lot of work around um, justice and equity is really difficult and it's really really important and so what listeners can do for me is definitely give themselves time to rest definitely give themselves time to breathe and to integrate the knowledge that they have learned because it's a lot it's it's a lot and the more you learn the more you learn that there is to learn And the more you think that your heart is not going to be able to break anymore, you're going to learn different and know that it is important to rest. And that doesn't mean that you are a terrible person. It just means that you are a person and know that it is. There's a line from the Talmud that I am, I've seen several different translations of, but my favorite is that you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. So you got to pick it back up. You got to keep learning. You got to keep expanding and learning and growing by letting your heart break over and over again. And I could have asked you to do lots of these. I could have been like, follow me on Instagram. But like, that's not, that's not what I'm looking for here. What I, it's, it's work that has been here for long before we, again, long before I've been here, it's work that's going to go on long after I'm gone. And It is, it is on all of us to do the work.
0: I completely agree with you. I think I told you that I was taking a class on intergenerational trauma and ancestral healing. And a lot of what our instructor had said was that we continue to do the work that our ancestors could not do or could not complete as a result of traumatic events that they may have undergone. Right. So famine, war, so many other things. And so... I can't think of a better way of ending than with your words. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom, to be so open to sharing your story. Thank you, Amanda.
1: Yeah, and thank you for creating this space and for asking such insightful questions, uh, even if part of me balks at some of them sometimes because they, they aren't the easiest, right? And, and that's, again, what makes it beautiful. So thank you for the space.
0: Thank you so much. All right. So we're signing off. Yeah. Bye. As I reflect on our time with Amanda, I keep meditating on a couple of pearls of wisdom she shared. I hope they inspire you as we close out this year. The first one is her contentious relationship to change. She states, every day that we wake up, we are new people. We have an opportunity to do things differently. We have an opportunity to shift our mindsets, to shift our bodies, to do all sorts of things. And for me, I have a very contentious relationship to change. And so I'd like for you to consider reflecting on your relationship to change. As we close out another year, many of us have probably already identified the changes we'd like to see in ourselves, our relationships, and or our relationship to Mother Earth. However, I once read that you can change without healing, but you can't heal without changing. In other words, change that is healing and long lasting comes from confronting the parts of ourselves that are dark, that keep us in a cycle of patterns that no longer serve us. So, Amanda and I invite you to begin exploring your relationship to change by journaling, taking a walking meditation, talking to a friend, choose something that feels right to you. And number two, Amanda reminds us that as black indigenous people of color, we must prioritize our wholeness because ultimately that is what the system is trying to undermine. So what does that wholeness look like for you? Full transparency, that is a huge question that could take a lifetime to answer. Nevertheless, it is a critical question that we need to reflect on and define for ourselves. And lastly, in honor of one of Amanda's intellectual ancestors, I'm going to leave you with a quote by the writer, feminist and civil rights activist, Audre Lorde, that I think honors Amanda's time with us around this digital campfire. Quote, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. In the show notes, you will also find Amanda's social media handles, website, and other sources mentioned in this episode. To remain connected, please follow us on Instagram at underscore your healing nature, or email us at info at your healing nature.com. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore BIPOC community, if there's a topic theme or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors and or rethinking the outdoors. Please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in sunshine.
1: Every day I'm walking in sunshine. Every night I dance on the moon.